This month, the UCLA Anderson Economic Forecast made a prediction we hadn't heard for a long time. Almost a year to the day since COVID-19 restrictions began, senior economist Leo Feller said, there's very good news for California. But two days later, revised numbers showed that job losses were higher than expected. That's not good news. But does it add up to bad news after all? Hello again, I'm Aaron Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management, where Leo Feller is Senior Economist at The Forecast. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me on, Warren. Well, it's great to have you. Do your optimistic predictions hold up with higher job losses than expected? Uh, very much so. At this point of the recovery, it's normal to have a few more job losses in some months, more job recovery in other months. And we'll always get some kind of revisions in previous job numbers. And so it's pretty normal at this point in time. The recovery is just beginning to take hold. And we expect, especially as we get mass vaccinations, as the economy starts reopening, that we'll get a clearer picture and much more robust economic growth and improvements in employment. How concerned are you that as a result of the openings in various places, there might be an increase in the COVID situation and consequently uh, more jobs lost? I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm an economist. You know, the data that I basically track has shown that the declines have stabilized. We're at a plateau in terms of COVID cases, similar to the numbers of cases that we had last summer. The big difference is, is that we're moving so quickly on vaccinations. We've been getting above 2.5 million nationally every day. This past Saturday, we had four and a half million vaccinations. And so the rate of vaccinations is moving along pretty well. The Biden administration hit the 100 million dose mark about six weeks ahead of where it had expected to. And so this is all really good news. And it means that, you know, yes, while we're having economic reopening, perhaps earlier than we should be having this, vaccinations are ramping up. And, you know, the, the hope is that that means that we are ahead of the curve in terms of preventing future waves and the need for, for further restrictions. What about the $1.9 trillion infusion of money into the economy? There are people who are saying that that's a recipe for inflation. We're not used to fiscal relief measures this large, but also this was a really unprecedented economic decline that we had this past year. So the number is 3.5% in terms of the decline of our economy. We had 22.5 million at the peak jobs that were lost. We've recovered all but 9.5 million. And so that's still 9.5 million jobs down. This is about the same level that we were at at the deepest point of the great financial crisis. And so to put this into perspective, yes, we've made a lot of improvements, but we are at, in terms of the state of our employment, the worst point of the great financial crisis. Now, the difference is that we have a clear path to recovery. We can see the economy reopening. We can see case numbers dropping. You can see this in financial data about consumer optimism, about home builder optimism, about manufacturers being optimistic about the new orders that they're placing, about taking deliveries. And so all of this is very different than great financial crisis. We're at the worst point, but with a lot more optimism about what the future will hold. It is often said that after what you referred to as the deepest of all the financial crises, the one that occurred just before President Obama took office, that after that, the government just simply hadn't done enough, hadn't infused enough money into the economy. Is that mistake being made up for by President Biden? And are there any risks associated with it if you're not worried about inflation? You're right. In 
you know, following the great financial crisis, we had then the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, about $900 billion. It could have been something much greater, but this is a lot more aggressive than the, the great financial crisis. But that recovery was really slow, the slowest of any post-war recession. Looking back, there were a lot of mistakes that were made. There was too little fiscal relief. The Fed reacted too early, right? The Fed Reserve in 2015 started increasing interest rates at a time when unemployment was at 5%, and at a time when inflation, personal consumption, expenditure inflation, was at 1.2%. So with still high unemployment, without any inflation, the Fed Reserve started increasing rates and slowing down the economy based on forecasts, based on anticipation of eventual future inflation. What's different now is that the Fed Reserve is saying, look, we actually want to see signs of inflation occurring. We want to see the data show that we're having inflation before we react because we don't know that we can get inflation sustained above 2%. The structure of the economy has shifted and perhaps the way that our economy talk about more technology, more outsourcing, more consumer power, more consumer choice, you know, our economy is very different than the 1970s. Perhaps it isn't possible to have sustained inflation despite all the fiscal relief that we're getting into the economy. Well, you think of inflation, or at least most people do, those of us who are lay people with regard to economics, I think of inflation as a terrible thing. You're saying we might not even be able to reach 2% inflation as if that's something to worry about. We have to be careful about having inflation that's too high, but the thing that's more dangerous than inflation is deflation, right? What we absolutely don't want to have is a deflationary spiral where prices start going down. I mean, think about it, Warren. If you want to buy a television or a house or a car and there is deflation and you know that if you just hold on, the price of these items are going to go down because of a deflationary spiral, then what you do is you say, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to buy that TV or that car. And because everyone thinks this way, they hold off on buying that TV or that car, and that causes prices to go down even further, which means that people want to wait even further. So deflation is very dangerous because it causes people to hold on to their money because they earn more just by holding on to their money. Some inflation is good. Something at around 2% inflation is something that's slow enough that it's almost imperceptible to consumers. Consumers aren't noticing rapid price increases. But it also helps relieve markets. And so if you bought a house, paid a little bit too much for it, you know, you can hold on to that house and eventually prices will increase so that your house is again at market rate. If a firm hired workers and is paying them too high of wages given what the market commands, then one way to kind of clear the market is to lay off workers. The other way is to simply, if there is inflation, to not increase wages, and inflation will eventually catch up so that wages achieve a new equilibrium with the market. And so some amount of inflation helps clear out some of the sclerosis in markets. And we want to make sure that there is, you know, 2% is the target, that we're able to hit that 2% target. So everything's moving, of course. You talk about a new equilibrium, though. That would seem to me to be sort of the ideal situation. How long do you think it can last? Well, we're seeing actually a lot of potential for much greater productivity growth, you know, perhaps now in this next decade than we had in the past 10 years. And so there's a few things that have catalyzed this. 
One is the ability to work remotely. It means that you can pull people from different parts of the country, different parts of the economy that normally you wouldn't have been able to pull in if you required in-person working. The second is that there's a bunch of time costs associated with going into an office. You have to have first office space. You have to have commuting. You have to have a bunch of support services for people who are commuting. Economically, that is a sort of inefficiency if people can do the same quality work from home. And so we might actually have an increase in productivity as people are able to do more work remotely. And that might also help catalyze more economic growth than we've had in the past. Is that likely, though, to come at the cost of the jobs at the lower end of the spectrum, which are largely held by Blacks, Latinos, and others who aren't doing so well? Great point. This is going to be a costly readjustment. If you especially think about central business districts, all these services that these central business districts provided, the restaurants, the transport, the entertainment, the after work going to happy hours, going to bars that would happen in these central business districts, but also things like dry cleaning associated with people actually dressing up to go to work. You know, these services will diminish if people are working remotely and people are working from home. But we've had this over time. We've had massive changes in the way that our economy is structured that has led to job losses in certain sectors. And what always happens is that there are new sectors that are created. And so an example is one of the things that have come out of this pandemic is the convenience of having shopping done for you and having your shopping delivered. You know, maybe you're getting rid of some restaurant jobs, but you are also creating jobs in places like Amazon Fresh stores, where someone is now picking your groceries for you, packaging them and delivering them to your home. And so these extra conveniences, these extra innovations end up creating new jobs, but it is a costly adjustment, right? It's going to be people leaving the restaurant and entertainment sectors and people moving into logistics and transportation and warehousing sectors to respond to all this surge of online commerce that we really do think is likely to continue even after the economy reopens. We already have enormous inequality in the economy. Is this liable to make it worse before it gets better? Yeah, so, you know, the recovery has been very unequal. You can see that people with the highest levels of education, who tend to have the highest levels of income, have done very well during this recession. They have been able to continue working remotely. They have been able to refinance their mortgages and, and have savings that way. They have not gone out and consumed restaurants and entertainment, so they have savings that way. You know, the data that we have suggests that Americans have saved at least $1.8 trillion up through January of 2021. And the savings is really concentrated amongst the top 40% of the population. The bottom 60% tended to disave, right? Yes, they got fiscal relief checks. Yes, they got you know additional unemployment, supplemental unemployment, insurance payments. Uh, but this tended to be disaved over the course of the pandemic as people had to buy you know food and pay rent, you know the normal household expenditures. And so the recovery has been very unequal up until this point. That said, a lot of the policies that the Biden administration has put in place are tending to promote greater equality of income. And so the transfers right now have been really concentrated amongst the bottom 60% of the population are getting almost the entirety 
of the transfers from this latest fiscal relief packages. And so that helps, but there's, there's a dignity that comes from work, not just getting transfers. And so the question is, how do we also create the jobs that will cater to the lower income proportion of the population? There's some natural recovery that's going to happen as the services sectors reopen, as people go to restaurants again, as people go on vacation again. But there's a lot of economic damage that has happened, and it will take a while for those sectors of the economy to recover. What about the $4.9 trillion that we talked about earlier that's been injected into the economy? Recently, enormous as that amount sounds, it's going to run out. What happens then? So the hope is that by the time that runs out, the economy is up and going again. People are out and people are spending. And a lot of the accumulated savings that Americans have been able to accumulate, that they will be going out and spending this money, and that that will actually help keep the recovery going. The purpose of the, the $4.9 trillion that we've gotten so far really has been to get us through up to the point that the economy is reopening. And it's likely that we're going to get to that point by the middle of this year. At that point, it's, okay, we've gotten people through to the other side of this pandemic. What do we do now to make our economy stronger and more resilient? And this is where there's the potential for things like investing in infrastructure, investing in people, investing in early childhood education, making sure that the recovery will keep going even once the money from fiscal relief checks has run out. But what if we don't make those investments? Uh, what if we're uh, stuck with the kind of partisanship we've seen so far in Washington for so long? What are the consequences of that? And if we reach some kind of equilibrium by the middle of this year, how long is it going to last if we don't have then the infrastructure and the other kinds of hopeful signs that the Biden administration is promoting? At that point, the economy looks like it did in 2018 and 2019, which is, you know, this is after the Trump tax cuts. You know, the economy was doing very well, but it took a really long time for that money to start benefiting the lower income classes. Unless we actually think about changing our tax and transfer system so that we are generating a more inclusive recovery, we will have an economy that looks like it did right before the pandemic. Now, that economy in aggregate looked pretty strong. It was just when you disaggregated it, you see that there were sectors of the economy that were really having a hard time, the lower income sectors. Some of the structural changes that caused difficulties for lower income workers have tended to work their way through already, right? So, you know, there's only one China, there's only one Mexico. We have already shifted a lot of production to China and Mexico. You know, there's only so much more that we can shift production to China and Mexico. And so these difficult structural transitions that happened, you know, through the late 90s into the 2000s have kind of worked their way through already. Those changes aren't really occurring anymore. They've, they've stabilized. They're not occurring at the rate that they were occurring before. This also means that labor in the U.S. has a little bit more strength compared to periods and times where you were having this increased outsourcing. And that should make the recovery now a little bit more equal as labor can command higher wages. Well, there's certainly a lot of countries other than China and Mexico to which we have exported uh, production. 
we've essentially gone through already a, a pretty robust round of outsourcing manufacturing production. You know, there's only so much more outsourcing we can do beyond what we've already done. You're starting already to see the shift of manufacturing and firms starting to think about resiliency rather than efficiency and should we actually bring some production back into the U.S., but the outsourcing story, I think it has already run its course. The automation story still has a way to go, right? So we still have to see, well, what will happen as we increasingly automate production? Usually, if you look at the decline in manufacturing, you can split it you know, roughly 50-50. Half of the decline you can attribute to outsourcing and to globalization, and the other half you attribute to automation. That would have happened anyway. The automation piece is going to continue to happen. And the question is, you know, can we generate enough growth in other sectors of the economy to absorb this labor that's being lost due to automation? In the meantime, you talked a moment ago about changing the tax and transfer system. Is that a gentle way of saying we need to increase taxes on the rich? I guess the question is, what are we trying to accomplish if we increase taxes? Well, I suppose to spread the wealth around would be one goal. Well, yes, but I mean, what you can do to spread the wealth around is just make sure that the sectors that are growing tend to be the sectors that employ lower income segments of the population. And so you can do that through taxes and transfers as well. Right now, our federal debt is at record levels, but our debt service is at 2.5%. This is similar to levels that we had in the 1960s and 1970s, much lower than the debt service levels we had in the 1980s and 1990s. Increasing taxes isn't so much about perhaps reducing the level of debt that we have right now. You know, the debt service is sustainable. It will rise over time. It's more a question of if the economy really starts getting going, at some point you need to absorb some of the aggregate demand that's out there. And there's a few different ways of doing that. One is by increasing taxes that pulls money out of consumption. And the other is increasing interest rates that, again, pulls money out of consumption. And so, you know, one option is for the federal government to, as the economy is really revving up, pull out some of the aggregate demand by increasing taxes. And who it does that on is a policy question rather than an economic question of what are the redistribution goals that the government has. One of the goals that is often stated, particularly by people on the left, but more and more by people in the center as well, is to get rid of what we refer to as economic injustice. Is there a point in raising taxes for that purpose, or do you have to be careful about what the consequences are? Normally, when you think about taxes, you think, okay, what, what's going to be the incentive effects that we induce? And so let's suppose that you increase taxes on high earners. Will that disincentivize work? You know, I think it's difficult to see why it would disincentivize work, right? You know, people earning above $400,000, it's not as if, you know, if they're going to be earning a little bit less because of taxes are going to suddenly be disincentivized from working. They're already earning, you know, above $400,000. If there were a point that they would be satiated, you'd think that maybe they would have hit that point sooner. That element of disincentivizing work, if you're taxing very high income earners, just doesn't really seem to hold from economic theoretical standpoint. You know, in terms of the marginal propensity to consume of people who are high earners, again, they're already satiated. If you're earning above $400,000, you're probably able to buy most of the things that you want to go out and buy. You know, again, it seems unlikely that increasing taxes would really harm consumption for this group of people. The reverse is true, right? If you are taxing lower income consumers who have a higher marginal propensity to consume, 
and taking money out of their pocket, since more of every marginal dollar that they get is going into consumption, that can actually have a more harmful effect on the overall economy, on overall consumption. You're not a psychologist, uh, but uh, economics often involves psychology. So tell us about that, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, consumer behavior and also investment. So consumption is about 70% of our economy. What we need to happen in order for the economy to get going again is for consumers to feel comfortable going about the habits that they had before, going into restaurants, going into retail, going to bars, going into entertainment, traveling, congregating in groups. We have a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of desire to go out and do these things again. The question is, have our habits changed, right? So, you know, yes, as soon as the economy reopens, we want to go out and see our friends. We want to re-engage in these old behaviors. But then what happens after that initial release? Do we go back and we realize that we've gone out and bought, you know, wonderful new televisions and PlayStations, and we've gone out and bought sporting equipment to be able to work out at home? And so let's just continue doing things a little bit more at home than we used to before? Or do we go back to the way that we used to do things before the pandemic? That's really going to help determine whether or not consumer behavior will help drive the economic recovery forward. In terms of investment, we are at a very uncertain time. So we have all these forecasts for very rapid economic growth. We also have forecasts of slightly higher inflation than we've had in the past. And we also have the Fed Reserve saying that they're going to embark on a different kind of policy approach, that they're not going to react to forecasts of inflation. They want to actually react to actually seeing inflation. Investors seem like they want to test the Fed on this, right? Will the Fed react any sooner? Or will the Fed actually hold true to its word of only raising rates once they see signs of actual inflation? So I expect this to be a little bit of a turbulent time for markets, just given that we are you know, really following a paradigm shift in the way that we conduct fiscal and monetary policy. Let's look at it from the other point of view. Uh, there's a lot of talk now about having some kind of guaranteed income in the relatively near future. Uh, and people say, well, that will disincentivize people and uh, they'll just uh, want to live off the state. But given the early experiments in that in Stockton and other such places, do you think there is a possibility that there will be some kind of guaranteed income level necessary in order to make up the difference as the economy evolves, as you say, it's obviously going to do? You know, a lot of this discussion about universal basic income. Where I have seen this uh, and studied it myself is in Brazil, looking at cash transfers to poor households. So I used to work at the World Bank back in 2002, and the discussion there in Brazil was, should we hand out food or should we hand out income? And, you know, our whole point was don't hand out food. That's a logistical nightmare. Most of the issue in Brazil isn't that people go hungry. It's that they don't have a variety of nutrients and they don't get the vitamins that they need because of that. So when people hit hard times, they will eat rice and beans every single day. And, you know, they're not getting, you know, vitamin D. They're not getting all sorts of like essential vitamins that they would get from a varied diet. And so the big discussion came, well, just give money because then they'll be able to go and buy what they need from the local market. And what you saw 
when these households would get money is that they would spend, of course, first on food, then on housing, then on soap and shampoo and toothpaste, you know, on education, on books, on clothing. There really wasn't any kind of expenditure that you would look at the items that these households were purchasing and say, okay, well, that's frivolous, right? These households are wasting this extra money. We're causing waste to the state. It was always something that you looked at and you said, these are essential, basic living items. There was a lot of concern when these programs were being set up of being paternalistic, you know, being able to dictate what households can spend money on and what they can't. And the answer is, you know, households can make these decisions pretty well for themselves. These kinds of programs did really help reduce poverty in Brazil and really helped make sure that there was, you know, less malnutrition, better health. But did it disincentivize work? And the answer is yes, but in a good way. And so when you actually had these transfers, what you would see is people that were elderly who you wouldn't think you would want these people to be, you know, out and working and peddling items on the street. You saw that these people actually cut back on their work. But it was a positive, right? A social positive. That was really the only place that we saw a reduction in work effort. We didn't see a reduction in work effort among prime age, able-bodied men and women. We did see, and interestingly enough, a shift of people moving away from dense urban cores and moving towards, you know, rural areas where the value of the transfers would actually go farther. And again, that's not necessarily a negative. What that means is you didn't have to be in dense areas of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo living in slums trying to make a living because that's where the labor market would provide with the best rewards because you could depend and you could rely on these transfers. There's lots of other reasons why transfers are helpful, which is it allows people to search for better quality job matches. And that means that for individuals and for firms, they're able to get the right workers for, you know, for the jobs that they're offering. And those better matches will make the firms more productive. They're not going to train someone who will, you know, leave after a few months once they're able to find a better job. And they had only taken this job to tide them over in the meantime. And so that's what this universal basic income might provide. It has to be done carefully to, you know, to guard against disincentive effects. And really, it's something that I think the U.S. should study and then scale up if proves like it can be something that would be effective at helping alleviate some of the poverty in our society. Well, we have gone a long way from COVID restrictions in California to universal income in Brazil. I have been a reporter long enough to remember when economic forecasts weren't that big a deal, you know, we weren't all that interested in the economy. Uh, that is anything but the case at this moment. There is so much uncertainty around and so many things to be concerned about. We haven't even touched on uh, climate change, which would uh, give us another opportunity. And hopefully we will have another opportunity to talk with you, Leo Feller, a senior economist at the forecast at UCLA Anderson. Thanks a lot for being with us. Thanks so much, Warren. I appreciate the invitation to come and speak with you. And this has been How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. I'm Warren Olney. Thank you.